This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. Our aim is to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This episode, we look at the difficult topic of human trafficking, specifically how it impacts airports and what's being done to address the problem. It's coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 749 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and with me is Rob Mark. He's contributing editor to Business and Commercial Aviation, part of the Aviation Week group. He's a business jet pilot, CFI. He spent 10 years as an air traffic controller and supervisor, and he publishes the Jetwine blog. Hey, good evening from the Midwest, where it is trying to be spring, but it still hasn't quite figured it out because the temperature here... Oh, well, that's right. We promised last time we weren't going to talk about the weather that's right. anymore when we started the show. So forget I said anything. And thank you for uh, inviting me, Max. Well, it's great to have you, uh, despite the uh, diversion into the weather <laughs> that for everyone listening is in the past. Also with us is David Vanderhoof. He's our aviation historian. He hails from the American Helicopter Museum. Hello, everybody. I just got out of the garden. The planting has started for the season, so got got the first tomato plants in and the peppers in. So in case you wonder, you know, we we all do have other lives besides doing this show, <laughs> you know. Hey, we, we, if you think we live, breathe, and sleep airplanes all the time, yeah, probably... 85%. The rest of it, we do have other lives. So important. Max Trescott, uh, host of Aviation News Talk podcast, is off this week. I think he's out earning a dollar. Yeah, he's in, well, he was in uh, Knoxville with a with a client picking up a, a vision jet, and I saw a note that uh, he had gone to Oshkosh with them this afternoon, and then he's headed, let's see, the Pacific would be west from Oshkosh. Yes. I think you just go west until you see water, and then you either have to turn left or right, and even Max can figure that out. We saw a really fascinating video from him, and he just soloed in his uh, his, his helicopter. Yeah, that's an R-22, I think, wasn't it, David? R-44. 44, okay. Yeah, so uh, we're going to have to hear all about that. The, the video is quite... Uh, Entertaining, illuminating, and just a lot of fun to see somebody do a their first solo in a helicopter. Well, and I thought the quality of the video was so good because he had uh, uh, one of the GoPro 360 cameras, and it looks, from the perspective, it looks as though someone is sitting about two or three feet outside of the copter's bubble, yes. shooting back in at the pilot, and, of course, you know they can't possibly be there, but it's it's all done with magic. It is. So I'm really looking forward to hearing a, a real detailed uh, description of his experience there. And uh, hopefully we'll do that next week. Well, let's introduce our guest this episode. It's Betty Ann Hagenau. She is the founder and executive director of the Bay Area Anti-Trafficking Coalition. 
They're at B-A-A-T-C dot org. And uh, we uh, we shorten that to the B-A-A-T-C. And also the airport initiative. So B-A-A-T-C has observed a pattern in local trafficking cases. And the organization has created a targeted approach to disrupt that cycle at the airport, in apartments, and at hotel frontline industries. Now, Airport Initiative is the Human Trafficking Training Division of the Bay Area Anti-Trafficking Coalition, and that brings human trafficking identification training to employees at airports. Now, Betty Ann has focused her career on being an anti-trafficking thought leader. She's known for her collaborative work with over 100 anti-trafficking organizations and government agencies, both in the San Francisco Bay Area and around the world. Betty Ann spent 18 months interviewing former traffickers in San Quentin Prison to better understand their <laughs> somewhat lucrative business practices and to inform the development of BAATC's strategies and programs that train these frontline employees in the airline and hospitality industries. So, Betty Ann, welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I'm actually joining the broadcast just down the way from the Hillary Aviation Museum uh, here in Redwood City, California. So just visited it the other day. Excellent. We, we are big supporters of aviation museums and uh, always encourage everyone to seek out your local or nearby aviation museum and, and support them, certainly. But Betty Ann, let's, let's kind of frame this. Why are we talking about human trafficking on an aviation podcast? What's the aviation connection here? Thanks for having me. It's such a great question because I think some people would say, you know, are you, are you just trying to take this by land, by air, you know, kind of thinking of it in terms of a military sense. Well, where we're coming from is that we have learned from traffickers themselves that they think about their business as a money-making machine. And in order to do that, every single day, they need to move, work, and sleep their victims. And so we have just really focused a lot of our work, as you mentioned from my time of going into San Quentin over an eight-month, 18-month period, on focusing on just transportation. And anyone that you talk to who has lived experience with human trafficking uh, and is a victim of violence, uh, they would say that often transportation is very central to exploitation. And that can both be to maximize profits of st sleeping in one area, but moving to a lucrative area to um, be an escort or to be hired out or in any way to be exploited. But the other way is um, to avoid law enforcement and to, when I've talked to some of the um, you know, biggest traffickers that I know of that had these large networks. They would just say, well, when I felt law enforcement was hot on my tail, I would just get the, my girls on an airplane. I'd fly them to Reno. I'd have them go to the, you know, county in Reno where uh, prostitution is legal. And everybody there thinks that those girls are there on their own free will. And uh, I'm here to tell you they're not. A lot of them are actually held in exploitation, and a lot of them have to send a certain amount of their profits back to someone. Otherwise, things will happen to them and their family. So uh, so aviation is one of those places where when we started pounding um, the streets and just asking people who work in airports, they said, oh, if that's what that is, I, I see it on a weekly basis. 
Um, so what we ended up deciding to do with our frontline employee training is that we would consider that anyone who's custom, customer facing in places like airports, hotels, apartment complexes. And we just said, let's take our overall training about what trafficking is and what you should do if you see it and take it to the people that when they get dressed every day, they are uniquely positioned to potentially see trafficking on almost a daily basis. So we've been equipping them and uh, we're just seeing incredible results. So we're obviously not going to try to recreate the training in in this uh, podcast episode, but I think it might be worthwhile to kind of uh, define the, you know, the scope of human trafficking. I mean, what, what are we talking about? How do we define it? And I I know you've been very interested in, in looking at some of the myths that are out there about human trafficking. Yeah. So, you know, trafficking is kind of what we would say a modern form of slavery, right? It's the discussion that has slavery ever really gone away. It just has taken different forms. And human trafficking involves controlling a person through force, fraud, or coercion. And so traffickers may exploit a victim for their labor, uh, their commercial sex, or both. And so oftentimes when I start talking about human trafficking, you know, first, I, I mean, I literally have had a destination check at some of my trainings where I have had to say, hey, this is not car traffic or this is not air traffic. This is we're talking about the sale of human beings for the purpose of control and exploitation. Um, and so it is a tough topic to talk about with folks. But I see people often put it in this category of oh, you know, it's far off. You know, you, you need to get on an airplane to go tackle that or to see that in another country. And where I really start is let's talk about the myths that are out there about human trafficking. You know, it doesn't just happen to girls. It's happening to boys. It's happening to women and men. It's, it's uh, people of all ages uh, and all genders. It is not only sex trafficking. It is also labor trafficking of all kinds, exploited labor in all sorts of industries. And it doesn't just happen to foreign nationals. In most states like California, especially in the under 18 cases, we're talking almost 90% of victims are American citizens. So um, that's a big one for folks to really uh, understand. And then lastly, people just want to think, you know, it just happens there. And I'm here to tell you it happens in your community. Uh, when the FBI and other federal forces have done some big, of the op- big operations across the country, they're talking about 75 cities or 75 locations at once that they will bust in an operation crossing the country. And these are not just in the major metropolises of San Francisco or Dallas or D.C., These are in smaller towns. And so that is where our work in the Bay Area here in California, we have found that in the nine counties of the Bay Area, in the San Francisco area, we have every form of human trafficking that has been found to exist in the United States. And so that puts us on this, you know, in a sense, national upload of things that we're learning around the nine counties of the Bay Area. What can we then upload to the federal or to the national scene to say this is what we're learning in in the Petri dish that we have here in Northern California? Do you think there's something special about that area um, that's different than other other regions? Or is it maybe other regions uh, haven't had quite the microscope looking at this that maybe you, know, you in, in that area have? Yeah, in the Bay Area, I would say it's very porous, if you will. So there are um, many ports that are some of the biggest in the country. We have three international airports within 30 miles of each other, right? We've got Oakland International, San Jose International, and San Francisco. So that's really unique. And then I think um, it even gets to our sense of identity, because for a lot of people, they'll say, um, you know, oh, I'm from, you know, Houston. I'm from 
Oklahoma City. But when it comes to the Bay Area, a lot of times when you travel around the world, you say, oh, I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area. You know, you don't mention your little town that you're at between two others. And so there's a regional identity. And I think that does play into the conversation about human trafficking, because especially here when I have worked with former traffickers, they would sleep their victims in one county and then they would move them to another county to work. And they might even move them somewhere else in order to kind of harbor them for a little while before they're finding more work. And so there's a region to addressing the issue here that we've had to do much more blatantly and from the start than a place like a big city like Houston or Los Angeles or even Orange County is a huge county that they've kind of kept all their efforts within their county. And we have just by nature had to go cross-jurisdictional, work with all these different counties and say, how are we working together when movement is a part of this? And so uh, the other piece of this is, this is not just the huge international airports that this is happening at. This is smaller general aviation spots, um, helicopters, private jets, all sorts of things, because traffickers are making so much money at this business. They estimate it's over $150 billion a year that traffickers make from exploiting human beings. And so from that, um, you find them saying, oh, okay, well, if this airport's been trained, then I'm going to go down to the street to the smaller one. And so that's why our efforts have started at some of the larger conglomerates of, um, like in our case, the California Airports Council. And then we've been moving down the way towards talking to um, smaller aviation hubs so that we can talk about the connectivity of traffickers actually using those as jump-off points for transportation for their victims. I guess I wasn't aware that there was uh, so much of a, a transportation component to this that people who are individuals who are being trafficked like this uh, are, are, are moving around or are being moved around all the time. And so given that, it makes sense that uh, one way to, I guess, try to disrupt what's happening is to uh, you know look at these kinds of transportation modes that are so widely used by traffickers. Correct. One of our survivor leaders, Max, uh, mentioned us um, that she had actually counted that she had been trafficked through 26 international airports over 15 years. Wow. And she was actually trafficked by her mother, which is a whole other angle of this, which is to talk about familial trafficking, which is just so horrible to even consider. But um, Lisa stands as one of those um, you know, persons with lived experience that is one of my heroes from the standpoint of how she has reclaimed her life and how she um, is just an incredible leader in the movement now. But 26 international airports over 15 years. And the thought of just, could somebody have intervened? Could somebody have said something or seen that she was, um, you know, shaking or in just fearful or that she had physical bruising or any of that, you know? Um, and so that is where when we are training these frontline employees, they are feeling empowered to actually help somebody when they go to work every day. So is that the thrust of the training that you're delivering at airports, for example, is to create an awareness amongst the employees there to be able to identify potential instances of trafficking? Yeah, we, we have taken our trainings that we did do with uh, frontline employees, and we did make them available to the general public. It's just called our Freedom Flyer training. Instead of a frequent flyer, you can become a Freedom Flyer, and that's at just bwatc.org slash freedom. But 
that's a 10-minute training where anyone who travels through airports could say, Am, are my eyes and ears trained to potentially look for trafficking? But we specifically highlighted these customer-facing employees because they go to the same place every day and they can sense what's different. So the times when trafficking victims have made themselves known, especially to like, you know, law enforcement or anyone else at the airport who's wearing a badge or who has a uniform, is when something goes wrong. So all of a sudden a cell phone charger dies or they forgot their phone in a bathroom. And the next thing they know, they're just maybe lurking in the airport. You know, there was a case here at a local Bay Area airport where a gal was in the airport for 30 hours. So she started getting picked up on some of the security cams and things like that because she was uh, just around. And so um, a lot of these airport duty managers, people that just walk the hallways at the airport, they are the ones that are seeing that something is off or that somebody is lingering or that they seem very fearful or they're not leaving or going outside, you know, those kind of things. And uh, and so when we have been training these frontline employees, again, it's not about them just knowing like our organization or knowing that trafficking is happening. It's do they know enough to be able to report a, a good tip? And then you got to let the authorities do what they're meant to do. In airports, there is an emergency protocol system that can be kicked into action, whether it's for an active shooter, whether it's for somebody who is a victim of violence. And that's all we're asking employees to be tuned into is what do I need to do if I see someone who seems to be in harm's way? And what that means is, is that for an employee that usually on the back of their badge, they have a number they can call in the case of emergency. And at some airports, we've helped them change their protocols because it was like a janitor sees something in a bathroom or hears something. Well, they might not have English as a first language. So then they call their supervisor. Well, then the supervisor evaluates, well, okay, maybe I should call the dispatch. Well, by the time it gets to often the dispatch or the law, you know, potentially the law enforcement person that's going to respond for a wellness check, it's like a bad game of telephone. It's been translated into all these different things. And is the person wearing a pink shirt or a blue shirt? You know, and those things can get uh, convoluted. So what we have encouraged people to do is make the protocol simple, make employees know that they can directly report something. And then there are measures within airports now that actually help that response time be faster, uh, both for if a victim themselves might reach out. So there are restroom stickers uh, that might say, are you okay? Um, is someone controlling your documentation? Are you being paid for your work? Are you fearful for your health and safety? And there's actually a QR code on that campaigns, um, you know, on the sticker on the door. And if they scan their phone over that, it will actually send their location to dispatch. Because I don't know about you, but if I was a victim and I'm just told that I'm supposed to get off at Oakland Airport and I'm supposed to fly to Dallas, I'm not looking at what terminal I'm in or who's around me. And so the fact that that QR code could send someone right to that uh, airport bathroom for a wellness check, that I mean, that just makes things happen so quickly. And then for the general public, I don't think a lot of people know that if you see something that is questionable at an airport, in almost every international airport, at least that I've worked with so far in the United States, that spans you know both coasts, is um, if you dial 911 on your cell phone, it actually reroutes to the airport dispatch. So if you call from your cell phone, it's not like you're calling downtown and then they're trying to then get somebody out to the airport. They will actually connect in with um, with the airport dispatch and say, hey, we've got an issue and you've got to go and check it out. Um, so that is something that a lot of folks just traveling through airports don't know. So the training is creating a situation where the airport employees or the 
the eyes and ears of this. What kind of response have you gotten from airport employees in general? I mean, I'm sure some are uh, wildly enthusiastic about it and others maybe maybe less so. How do they feel? How do airport employees feel about having this this role and maybe even this responsibility? Indeed, I think it is something that is a responsibility that um, I think folks have actually really embraced, honestly. We did um, a study with UC Berkeley at SFO, San Francisco Airport, when we uh, were working with them. And they they did a pre and a post survey of all the folks that took our training. And um, we really had an academic really help us with the data and really be able to uh, let us know what the impact of the training was. And three things emerged. One is that they didn't just feel like there was a huge delta change in what they actually thought trafficking was. So that's super important, I think, to differentiate it for some, from some other things. Um, and that, um, you know, to dispel some of these myths. That it's not as much of like kidnapping or somebody just driving up in a white van and throwing somebody in, but it's actually a lot of times people are lured into this by a relationship where they know the person in some way and they have been duped or they have been told, you know, hey, let's fly to Hawaii in almost like a pseudo relationship. And then they get to Hawaii and the person turns on them and says, but if you loved me, you'd do this for us. So um, I think that it dispels a lot of myths for those employees and they're like, okay, now I know what I'm looking for. And to trust their gut, to really know that you, there's not some list of indicators that I can just give everybody and say, if you memorize these, you will see it. Um, it's more of trust your gut that something's off. And what does it mean to then know what to do? So then, and the third piece is just, do they know enough to then report? Because um, in a lot of these cases, when we have interviewed some people, they said, oh, if I see something, I mean, I'm just a volunteer at the information desk. And uh, they say, I think if I'm, I'm just, an, I'm, yeah, so I'm supposed to call Mary. Well, Mary is like the coordinator of the volunteers and she might be on vacation or in the bathroom and doesn't pick up her cell phone. So some of it has been around um, airports really looking effectively at their protocols. And then there's been the piece of how do we package this so that it's appropriate for employees who are in a custodial position, a window washer, somebody who's at a gate, and that they can say, in my job, I'm not called to try and end the entire scourge of human trafficking. I'm just tried to say I could help somebody and I don't want it to happen in my airport. And that's where I work with most of senior leadership at these airports. Uh, the head of some very big airports in our country is to say, it's not for you to end the entire thing. It's just to say, can we actually say hashtag not in my airport? And if we can get there, then we actually are disrupting the business of trafficking and making it much harder for traffickers to move their victims around. And by doing that, I'm telling you, a lot of these folks, they just get frustrated enough. They get out of the business altogether. What, is there a is there an age range of of victims that uh, is in your experience that is pretty typical? I have seen. I mean, the the youngest that we have been involved with helping return home uh, was right around fifteen. We know of many young girls in the area that are, you know, eleven, twelve, thirteen. Some of them have been, uh, especially during COVID, met people online. Were kind of saying, "I don't want to be at home during uh, the pandemic," and then they were there was some grooming, right? And then all of a sudden, somebody sends them a ticket and says, "Come join us." Um, so there's a lot of social media and concern over what is being put out there on. Uh, 
um, you know, platforms that can lure the young folks. But then I also was a part of a hotel operation right near one of the Bay Area airports here that illicit massage was happening there. And people were going onto a site and they were told to go to this hotel and knock on this door. And there was somebody in there who would do, you know, what they had requested. And in that case, the victims were all around between 45 and 60 years old. So, and I mean, these were hotel rooms that when we went in with the FBI, they were, I mean, there were hot pots, there were small fridges, there were uh, shelves set up with family pictures on them. I mean, these were not people that were staying a night or two at a hotel. So some of the things that we come to look at when we go in and talk to, say, property managers or hotels is that there are state laws now that actually require training of trafficking to frontline employees there uh, within uh, uh, hotels um, and soon-to-be apartments. And then there's also, uh, you know, a state, at least here in California, a state law that can hold a hotel liable if it can actually be proven that they knew what was going on in that hotel. So one of the reasons... Um, Rob, when you ask about kind of the age, but then also just where we're finding the victims, the reason I'm so passionate about working with airport employees uh, is that aviation is one of those areas right now that has not had a federal mandate to train frontline employees. And so we are seeing it as this major gap area where, um, you know, traffickers just know that they can they can have them pass through the airports. When it comes to the age you know, one of the interesting things is that through an airport, sometimes there have been traffickers who have been identified as like sports teams coaches, and they will come into an airport like every Friday with a team saying they're coming for a volleyball tournament, a basketball tournament. And these are all young kids that are then turning around and being exploited and kind of handed out places um, to other middlemen who then take them to different places. So um, one of the folks and one of the cases we worked with here was a young lady who just went uh, out from her house, told her parents she was going for a walk, and she was 15 years old, and she took an Uber to the Oakland airport, and with her passport, and she just got on a plane and flew to Florida. And, uh, and so those, and so 72 hours later, thankfully, with the help of a federal network of folks, she was identified in Florida and was able to be brought home for a second chance to be a part of her family again. Uh, but, and that had been, she had met somebody online and they had said, Hey, come, come hang with us in Florida. So young people, when they're going through an airport and oftentimes when folks are under, uh, you know, are identified as a minor, they aren't having to show any kind of identification that they actually go with the parental group that is with them or with the coaching group. And so that is an area of why we hone in on airports, uh, both because we feel like that training is absolutely should be essential for frontline workers and because uh, it is uh, somewhat the, you know, juvenile um, victims are often able to pass through unseen. We do know that Amber Alerts on the roadways, if somebody was abducted or whatnot, you know, you're look, everybody's looking for license plates and we've got these signs up and it's, it's much more difficult in a lot of airports to actually have those Amber Alerts reach the security folks in time if those young people are going through the airport. So we've kind of hit a gap and we're trying to really make it a federal uh, mandate that uh, air, airports would be required to have their frontline folks trained. You will find certain airlines that say, hey, we're doing our part. We are training our employees. And what I would say to those airlines, some of whom we are in partnership with, is that um, they just need to continually update their training. Some of the trainings that I know of that are out there were formed in 2015, 2017. And I can sit here as someone who has been working on this issue since 2002, and I can tell you this is a crime that keeps changing. 
you know, and traffickers here, there's a movement to catch them here and they move here. And there's a way to catch them on this platform and they move here. And so it's a very, we've had to be very nimble and very um, adjustable to kind of follow where we could be most effective. And so um, anyway, I do think that um, that's why we push for it so hard uh, in airports. Betty Ann, what about the the possibility of, I'll call them false positives. If you have people that are they're trained to uh, identify certain behaviors or characteristics or something. It's not going to mean in all cases, I would assume that it's uh, a human trafficking. So uh, there have been some reports in the press. We've, we've seen some where someone has been stopped and interviewed and it turns out it's a father and daughter, you know, on a trip together and nothing and nothing more than that. Do you see these kinds of false positives as, as being a, a significant issue and how do you address those? I have a strong feeling that in those cases, I have really applauded when the airlines have stood behind their employees and have said, thank you for taking a stand. Because for the very few cases, and some of them do get blown up in the news, for the individual case where a parent says that was very traumatizing for my child, in those instances, they are what the media picks up and makes into a big thing versus the other nine out of 10 times that somebody had an inkling and it actually led to potentially an intervention that was helpful to that person. So I think that we have to remember that, um, that, that, and that's why I say in those cases, you know, it's for the airline or it's for the airport to stand behind that employee and to say, hey, we are on the front line of seeing victims of violence come through our doors and we're going to do our very best to try and help them. But in the case of uh, one, once in a while, um, and, and I've been doing this work again for 2014 is when we started training uh, really specifically with airports and uh, kind of have increased over time. And since then, I have seen maybe two of those stories that have really hit like a national level. Um, and we, we're always working on, I think when it comes to trafficking, I mean, like I said, I've been working on this since 2002. It's something where if you're the type of person where you kind of just hear about it and it's so horrible and the next day you're just hoping that it will like completely change and we will all see the light and we will all be crunching down on this in our communities. I think the the more helpful perspective for me has been to look at trajectories because you can look at law enforcement trainings and you can say, are all law enforcement trainings great? No. But are they better than they were four years ago, you know, in this specific region? Absolutely. Um, you can look at sentencing for traffickers or say, you know, gosh, they're just, you know, literally there's like, they just kind of get a slap on the wrist. And then all of a sudden, you know, some trafficking um, here in the state of California right now, there's a Senate bill that is up for uh, that then trafficking would be a violent crime, which would lead to higher sentencing uh, and would be a part of California's three strikes law. So so there's some things where you have to look at are things moving in a trajectory of getting stronger. And so in this case, especially with airports, the reason I have such a compassion for the aviation space is because for the airport directors who I work with personally, they tell me, Betty Ann, I get that this is an issue in the community and you're asking me to train my employees. But I haven't heard of a trafficking case at my airport in, say, over six years or over eight years. Well, it's not that trafficking's not coming through their airport. What's happening is that these huge international airports, you have an active FBI office, you have an active DHS or HSI office, which is Homeland Security, and those folks have bosses in D.C. So when a case does come up or they intervene for someone, they might not even mention it to anyone else because they are working on a larger national scale case, and they go in and they 
they do their work and off the airport grounds it goes. And that airport director is not told of what's been happening. So I would obviously encourage for, you know, for international security um, meetings and things at these large international airports for folks to be able to share more of cases coming forward because it would bring to light more how much this is happening in airports. Uh, the thing that I don't want people to feel like is if an airport is like, we are proud to say that we are training our folks on human trafficking, it doesn't mean, oh, shocker, like I go through, you know, this airport and now I'm going to say I'm going to avoid that because trafficking goes through it. The reality is it's happening around us every day and we have to understand that our eyes and ears can be trained to see it, but we can also applaud the airports who are doing their work to actually be a resource and a place to help for victims of violence, that this may be the one time in that whole month or that whole six-month period where they're traveling through an airport where an everyday citizen or a frontline employee could actually do something to help intervene for them so that they are um, able to come out of their exploitation and to uh, really, you know, step into a new light. And so I just am, I I really want to applaud the different um, airlines and the different airports who are working with us and who are committed to training their employees, because we have to understand there will always be stories that get blown up in the media. And I don't want to minimize what happens to those individuals that do feel like it's a, um, whether it might be a profiling or something that happens. But I think as the trajectory goes, the trainings are getting stronger and better so that the tips can be better and the wellness checks can be uh, done in a healthy way so that folks that are in harm's way could get help while they're still in that airport. Is the work that you're doing uh, sort of West Coast focused or are you traveling all over the U.S., Betty Ann? We started as the Bay Area Anti-Trafficking Coalition here in the Bay Area, Rob, and that's why we get our crazy acronym BAATC. But we uh, quickly, with working with these uh, former traffickers in San Quentin and realizing the networks that they had up and down the coast, all across the country, um, even when I was initially in this work and holding one of our first Freedom Summits, which was a huge awareness event for people understanding it happened in the Bay, it happened back in 2011, and I'm standing up there and I'm saying, we have to understand and it happens here. And, uh, and I had no idea that that very weekend that they were doing an operation in Danville, which is a small town in the East Bay, which is where I'm from. And they actually uncovered a brothel there that had been working for 14 years. And it was over 26 women. And they had been flying them all over the country in order to maximize their profits. So, um, and this was a couple that was just doing this. This was their business. It was out of their home in San, San Ramon and, and had, um, arms of it in Danville. And so, Again, very small town, huge network, going to multiple states, largely using airplanes to transport their victims. And so I was just so shocked that I'm the type of person that like when I learn something, I do want to turn around and kind of bring everybody with me and say, let's learn about this together. But I couldn't believe um, how much was happening in the small towns of the Bay Area and beyond. So we have started with a Bay Area focus. Um, and as I mentioned, all nine counties of the Bay Area do have every form of human trafficking that's been found in the whole United States. But what we started doing is starting to talk to airports throughout the state of California because we did form a partnership with the California Airports Council. And we said, hey, if you're part of that, we would love to join with you and get your employees trained. 
And again, we're a nonprofit in this work. This training costs peanuts, but we just want to get it out there to as many frontline employees as we can. And the silver lining of COVID for us was that instead of going to all these airports and trying to do in-person trainings, we were able to take those and actually upload them and put them as an online course. So somebody like Denver International Airport, they put it out to 30,000 employees and said, we can make this something that we ask our employees to take. So it was all of a sudden uploaded and able to go out to thousands more employees that either take it on an annual badging uh, basis, like at Burbank Airport, they're our first airport partner to actually have it on their annual um, badging, which we commend um, Hollywood Burbank Airport for doing. And so all their employees will be trained. At other airports, they say, well, we'll just do these customer-facing folks or you know, this airport authority that we can train. Uh, but when it comes to uh, where we work, we will go where the interest is. So we are in Vermont. We are in Iowa. We are in Florida. We are in Texas. So right now we're in um, 12 airports in seven states, and uh, we've trained over 55,000 employees. And that grows very quickly when you know that some of these airports are small cities, right? I mean, they're, you know, I know San Francisco has over 50,000 employees. And so the the tipping point for me has been, and this is my real passion spot, is we can't say that like an airport's been trained if we have a hundred people come to one setting one day on one shift and say they cared about trafficking. We have to get through the tipping point of having enough thousands of people trained that on every shift of every day at every airport that we're able to say that these are people who know how to identify and effectively report trafficking. So we've got a big commission ahead of us for sure, but we have been met with incredible enthusiasm across the country. And part of what we do is we look at some of the airplane, um, just track, uh, you know, flight patterns that connect with our three Bay Area airports the most. And we reach out from there. But um, we have an incredible network of folks working with us from coast to coast. So Betty Ann, in 2002, what happened that put you on this trajectory? <laughs> it is a long time ago. I'm um, doing the math and I'm sitting there going, has it really been that long? I was working in the international human rights space and I was hearing about trafficking happening. And quite frankly, it was putting me on my heels of just even believing that this could exist, right? At that point, they were even estimating over a million children were going into trafficking a year and were being exploited around the world. And I just, I mean, I have a passion for human rights. I have a master's in international conflict resolution. I, 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 I go into things where I want to be in what's hard. Um, and, and yet I was, I was so stunned when, um, a young girl went missing in one of the small towns here in the Bay Area. And the whole community was just silent on it and just nobody was responding. And it was almost as if because this had been a girl that had, quote, run away, that, you know, she was a problem child or that she had ran away before or, oh, you know, there's family issues there and we don't want to talk about it. And it was like, if you knew the situation, she left home with no extra clothes, no money and no cell phone. And I can tell you, she wasn't just one town over waiting at a frozen yogurt shop for her mom to pick her up. Like the reality of it hitting our community and not seeing the framework in place for people to respond and actually understand that a disgruntled teen like that could actually get plugged into a global cr criminal activity was something that I just, it just swip, switched the flip, uh, what is it, flipped the switch for me. I really felt like all my passion for traveling internationally and all that, it was like, we do, we're not even set up here. And so 
that's where we held uh, our first, I just had 12 friends and we said, let's hold an awareness event for it happening in the Bay. We're going to have survivors, leaders that uh, were people who had been trafficked in the Bay speak. Um, we are going to have all these folks from different areas of a district attorney, a law enforcement official, all these people. And we brought people together and it became the largest community-led gathering around human trafficking at that point in the United States. And it was like, it just blew us out of the water how much interest there was. We had Condoleezza Rice speak as one of our speakers, and I still commend her for boldly standing up with us in those initial years to say, it's happening here. And uh, and then we had some musicians come in uh, and and really speak to their passion around human rights and international trafficking and, ha- and talking again about being like, we have to be open to the fact that it's happening here and what can we do? So um, all that to be said that I uh, I just felt like my heart completely switched towards the domestic scene when I realized the structures weren't in place. And again, is every town ready and whatnot? We're on a trajectory, but I would say uh, that is moving towards more light than it is dark. I would put it that way. And I am continually encouraged every day by the people who join me in this fight, who want to know more, who want to just keep learning. And oftentimes I will end my talks so that people aren't, you know, bolted to their chair in despair of understanding that it may be happening down the street from them is to understand that um, you can say, what could I do against trafficking? And you could put it on a continuum of like a 10, 10, 10. What can you do in 10 minutes? What can you do in 10 days? And then what can you do in 10 months? Because I have walked with many individuals who have said, you are taking me from zero to 60, thinking that it now, that it happens in my hometown. And by the time they've Googled human trafficking in their town and they read a few news articles and they watch two or three YouTubes on it, I mean, they are just, you know, bowled over by it and they want to go stick their head in the sand and have an ostrich type approach of just, I, I want to pretend it doesn't happen. And instead, the way I encourage folks to do things is, you know, look up if your county does have a, a meeting that you could attend once a quarter or once a month. You know, put the National Human Trafficking Hotline in your phone in case you see something systemic in your community that you'd like to report, like a business that seems like it's a front for something else. Um, or if you work in a frontline industry, that I've mentioned, like airports or apartments or hotels, get in touch with us at airportinitiative.com or at BAATC.org. Let us know that you want to train your employees. So it's something where people can put some things on a time continuum so that in 10 months they can look back and say, look at some steps I've taken to learn more about this issue. But it does not happen overnight. How many people did you interview at San Quentin? That is one of those stories that I feel like someday I've got to put into a book mainly because it just impacted me at such a deep personal level. These were uh, many of the men who came to our group uh, were actually somewhat connected to the trafficking issue. But by that, I mean that a lot of them were actually in there for gang-related crimes. And they would say, I wasn't trafficked, but I understand all these markers that you're saying that are from somebody who has been exploited because I was threatened. I was told that if I didn't do this, my mom would be killed or my dog would be killed or my sister would be harmed or whatnot, right? And so a lot of these guys had such lived experience of being traumatized that they had um, great compassion for what we were trying to do. We were working together with them to kind of help their stories get outside the walls of San Quentin. 
And they were willing to talk to us about what their business plan would have been around the Super Bowl that came to Santa Clara in 2016. So we were in there before that in 2015. And these guys were like, oh, yeah, this is how I would move my victims. This is where I would stay. This is how I'd make the most money. This is how I'd elude law enforcement. And uh, so every time we went, Rob, it was um, it was, you know, a, a small group of men, um, you know, anywhere from, say, four to maybe seven or eight men. Um, and some of them have just become major advocates for uh, helping with some anti-trafficking uh, awareness and curriculums in the probation and juvenile justice system, because that is where they are seeing that a lot of these criminals are being made because somebody will be taken in for a certain crime and then within whether it's or into taken into foster care and they go into a group home and then there's a girl within the group home that's recruiting for a pimp who says you could make this much money on the weekends and things like that. And so all of a sudden they get lured into this lifestyle of crime and violence where they oh, they just wish they could get out. And so um, but they don't know how. And they're so oftentimes people are like, well, why would a victim of trafficking going through an airport? Why wouldn't they just use that as their opportunity to run to law enforcement and say, help. Well, it's not physical chains that hold these victims. It is psychological, mental, emotional change. It is totally coercion and um, and force and brutality that they have been brainwashed. I mean, the girls that I talked to at one of the safe houses I went to, it was baffling me because it was in Hawaii. And I thought it would be all these folks coming from Pacific Rim countries that had been um, brought into the safe home in Hawaii. And it was all American girls with American cell phones who spoke English and none of them would call 911 because there had been so much brutality and brainwashing that if they ever did that, that they would, um, you know, somebody would be harmed or they would be harmed in a big way. So we have to understand it's the psychological and emotional um, chains that are holding these victims to their traffickers. And so just by asking someone how they are or, you know, noticing something. I was going to talk about some of the common indicators in an airport. You know, somebody who has no personal items, you know, or they're sitting next to you and they seem extremely nervous um, or maybe even crying and, uh, and anxious. And I know that somebody could say, well, that could just be an extreme fear of flying. Well, I would love for it to just end up being that, but I think to not do anything would be the real travesty. So, you know, somebody who's visibly upset, somebody who's in the airport for a really long amount of time, somebody whose story doesn't add up, you know, or that their clothing doesn't match where their destination is. You know, one time I saw somebody who was dressed in like a tank top and shorts, but it was like middle of winter and they, you know, and they were going to the Midwest. And I was like, I have relatives in Chicago and I know that that's not the temperature there right now. Um, so inconsistent stories, you know, really seeing that somebody is with someone they are uncomfortable around or that maybe they claim to be an adult, but you know they're much younger. You know, those are all tips where, again, it like it doesn't mean you have to intervene and, you know, try and get between someone who is looks physically strong and someone who's um, much smaller or something. We would never ask you to put yourself in harm's way. But what we would ask is that you would just trust your gut and if something feels off, to actually, uh, you know, call 911 or say something to an airport employee so that they could intervene for that potential victim. Are all the traffickers men? Mm, 
Absolutely not. Um, many of them, uh, this is both internationally as well as here in the United States, um, are all genders. I mean, we find a lot of, you know, brothels, say, uh, around the world are run by, you know, madams or by women. And oftentimes it is within, um, you know, like, say, a young girl then meets a girl in a group home and that girl's being meant, you know, kind of, there's like these rungs of hierarchy within these trafficking networks. And so, you know, oftentimes there will be um, just every gender represented in terms of who is exploiting who. Um, and again, I, I say that sensitively from the standpoint of anyone who has ever been lured into this, there is quite a lengthy and very personal story of what kind of the push-pull factors of what kind of moved them into that space to be vulnerable and then, you know, what happened to them. But, um, but in many cases, uh, you know, what they are looking for is for someone to actually just see them and to be able to potentially intervene when they don't have the voice to do it for themselves. So for instance, I had one info booth person that was a volunteer. She said, I've never seen trafficking. I said, well, have you ever had anybody come up to you and ask you what city they're in? That is a huge red flag. I mean, with our phones and it pings me and tells me I should order something on Uber Eats tonight and Yelp says, welcome to San Mateo and all these things. Um, if somebody does not know what city they landed in, huge red flag, right? So how could that person maybe help delay that person at the info booth or say, you know, I'm just going to make a phone call to da da da, just stay here for one minute, you know, whatever. And that that may be the chance to kind of intervene for that person who does not want to walk outside those doors. So again, airports present a very interesting kind of closed system where even in flight, flight attendants can actually let a pilot know and they can call ahead to the airport that where they're landing to be ready to have an intervention for a potential victim. And that is where we need to be very sensitive and we obviously need to not alert the entire plane or put anyone else in harm's way. But um, there are effective ways to do that. But definitely not just men, um, you know, definitely not just um, women or, or it really represents all genders and ages as well. Betty Ann, do you find yourself looking over your shoulder all the time? Are are you disrupting the the livelihood of 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 some of these folks in a way that makes you concerned about your own personal safety? I mean, I appreciate the question, but honestly, um, most you know every thought leader that I've talked to, as well as anybody who is um, you know even these traffickers in San Quentin, they're like, quite frankly. You know, to know the Rotary Club of this town has been trained is not going to stop me from putting my girls out on the street that night because they're just making so much money at it, right? So, yes, is there a certain element of, sure, we could be saying that we're trying to disrupt a crime and of folks who are making a ton of money. But I think there's much more weight on the side of those who are with us and who believe in the strength of numbers of what we're doing. So, you know, do I have a special relationship with my you know, district attorney and the law enforcement around me to know where I live and what's going on. Sure. Because there's an element of safety I have to be watch out for. But in the case of, um, you know, these folks that we're trying to help, to me, it's worth it. I think if we could help, uh, and I know we have, if we have just helped one, that would make it all worth it. Um, we actually have some airports reach out to us and they're like, we can't put this in the media, but you know, you helped us train our employees 
they ended up saying something. It led to, you know, this young gal in her 20s being helped. And then we actually caught the head of the snake. We went after the trafficking network and, you know, 20 people were caught or whatever. So those are the moments for me that this really scales to see the snowball rolling downhill and knowing that if airports do their part, we're moving, uh, we're moving in a major way in the aviation space. And that continues to encourage me day by day. Hmm. All right. Well, tell us once again where we can go to uh, learn more, support the, the efforts, uh, find other resources that might be helpful. Yeah, thanks for asking. Well, anyone can check out our work at either airportinitiative.com, and that is our site for airports or someone in the aviation space if they're interested in seeing a demo of our training. But if you're interested in human trafficking in general and want to learn more about the anti-trafficking movement uh, that well goes beyond the Bay Area and extends across the country, we're a great point of reference, and that's at baatc.org, Bay Area Anti-Trafficking Coalition. Uh, .org. So, um, and then you can always reach me there at hello at baatc.org. And I'm here to answer any more questions that come up for folks. I'm always appreciative of times when I can talk about our work. So thank you, Max, for reaching out. And, and thanks to the team on tonight for um, your great questions. I think there will always be more. And my main thing is just let's, let's all do what we can. And if we can trust our gut, I think it's an important time in our world to still be looking out for those around us who could really use our help. Mm, yeah, brilliant. I know I've learned a lot after this conversation. So thanks again, Betty Ann. Thank you. Thanks. You know, I know that you mentioned that uh, that uh, issue on American Airlines a couple of weeks ago was a fluke, but I'm trying to imagine, because I have a, a daughter, and I mean, I'm trying to imagine what a guy could do on an airline flight with his daughter that would tip somebody off. The only thing that came to mind for me was somebody that would have been angry or mm -hmm. somebody that was really saying, you know, shut up or, you know, that kind of real frightening kind of language. Because, uh, I mean, if, if people listen to my daughter and I when we're on an airplane, they'd say, these guys are nuts. You know, these two, let lock them up when they get to the uh, destination. But so, I mean, that's just, that's just so sad. Uh, but again, I better, better that one or two times than, uh, yes, uh, better be you know, safe than opposite. sorry. Right. Yeah. yeah, I had a case. I was just coming back from Germany at the in uh, early October, and I was on a flight, and I was in one of the long center seats, and there was a boy there, and he couldn't have been more than 12 or 13. And he liter we literally got on, and he just put the blanket over his head and laid down, and I was like, okay, he's just going to sleep, you know, whatever. Then there was like the food came, the snack came, you know, things came, and it was like six hours into the flight, and he had never come out of the blanket. And I'm like, okay, maybe he's just a good sleeper or whatever. But then, like, this guy comes up who had been up in first class and was just like, hey, are you doing okay? And kind of asked him three questions and then was like, all right. And then goes back. And the guy immediately went back under the blanket, like, never came out of the blanket in 11 hours, never got up to go to the bathroom, didn't have any books, didn't have anything to do, you know. And I was like, that's weird. You know, it's just weird enough of that dynamic of, like, are they really related? What's going on? Like, why is the guy in first class, but his son is back in economy? Like, I had a lot of questions. And so at least the good part is now that where we're at on this stuff is that you could go up to a flight attendant like I did and say, you know, 
and, and, it, and it still might not be that anything happens, but it's like, hey, this was weird enough. I need to tell you. And um, and so then, you know, I've had that. We've had crazier cases where somebody's even found a napkin and somebody wrote, help, I'm held pit prisoner on this flight to the West Coast. And that dropped out on the floor just as these people were leaving and somebody found it. And she went up to a flight attendant and was like, I found this at that seat. This is what it said. And unfortunately, the flight attendant was like, yeah, it's probably nothing, you know. And it's like, to me, that's where I'm like, you actually had it from a particular seat to just know that person's name, to call it in and be able to have that airline or that airport be able to just track, did that person get on another flight or just who's the name, you know, and if it ever circled back that that was then a part of anything that happened in a police report even days later, you know, it it just... It, it was so unfortunate in my mm. mind. So I could go on with little vignettes here and there, but a lot of it comes down to even the, the racial profiling case that came into Denver airport that was maybe uh, nine months ago. Um, very interesting of like what could be with this small girl and her mom that like literally would alert the, you know, gals enough to call ahead. I mean, that's some pretty weird behavior, I think. So, so in a lot of times I'm like, you know, I just, I think the airlines and the airports, they got to stand by when people feel like there's that much off because those people see thousands of people every day, you know? So to see something that literally alerts them, I think we got to trust it. All right, just a few things. What's up with the geeks? Oh, I have a confession. I missed up last episode. Wait, wait, wait. Whoa. <laughs> Max, are you insinuating? Are are you expressing to the audience that you made a mistake? You're not perfect? I'm falling yes. on my Thank sword. Thank you, David. Yes, I, yes. You're not perfect? Well, and, and Max Trescott almost caught it because I could, I, I, well, I'll tell you what it is. I said uh, that, I, that we talked about the Vision Jet on the first air, uh, episode of the Airplane Geeks podcast. And from the sound of his, the tone of his voice, you could tell he was a little bit skeptical of that because I think he thought the timing did, well, it wasn't the Vision Jet. It was the Eclipse Jet. It was the Eclipse 400 that was on the first episode that we talked about on the first episode of the Airplane Geeks podcast. So the way I found that, it was actually kind of difficult because we, years ago, we actually lost the first six episodes of this podcast when the the web host that we were using went out of business, just closed shop, folded up, everything lost. So the only way to see the the first episode, actually the first six, is if there's something called the Internet Archive, and they have the Wayback Machine on the Internet Archive. And you can actually go there they, because they take snapshots of the Internet, basically, periodically over time. And you can go back in time and see what a web page looked like in the past. So uh, we'll, we'll put a link to that in the, in the show notes. And uh, as for the recordings because the internet archive it doesn't capture in the wayback machine the actual recording of the podcast just the web page so we have uh, resurrected the the first 6 mp3 files and there's a there's a page out there it's called the missing uh, the missing episodes and we'll put a link to that in there as well and encourage you not to go back and listen to the first 6 episodes <laughs> 
<laughs> because at this stage, they are truly embarrassing. <laughs> truly. But it's, uh, it's fun. So uh, let's see. What's up with you guys? Anything uh, going on? Rob, you're getting ready to take off for a bit. Well, I, I mean, we take our break uh, after next week's episode, don't we? Uh, and I'm not going anywhere compared to what you're doing. Uh, I'm simply going out for about 10 or 11 days. Uh, we're headed to, uh, uh, to London for a wedding, uh, then up to uh, Ireland uh, to visit some old friends for a few days, and then we're headed to, uh, to Rome and up to Florence, Italy, and then back uh, to Chicago. And that's, uh, that's nothing compared. You'll probably still drive more miles in, in your vacation uh, or your time off than I will fly in mine. But uh, it's going to be nice to get away. It's been, uh, it's been an interesting uh, year, and uh, I'm, ready for, uh, I'm ready for a break. Yeah, that's good. That's good. We all deserve a break. And yeah, I should probably describe mine because it's quite, uh, as you suggest, pretty extensive. So this is uh, taking this, the long way from the East Coast to the Canadian Rockies and then theoretically coming back home. But I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens. So so basically, we're going to take uh, kind of a hiatus this summer for a couple of months, uh, June and July anyway. And uh what we're going to do is, so as to not leave you all without anything to listen to, is we're going to reach back into some past, some past episodes and uh, bring you some, uh, some interviews with some particularly interesting guests or notable guests, things like that. So our intent is to uh, still put out an episode uh, each week, um, but they will be replays from past, sometimes distant past episodes. And it, it, ought, to be, uh, it ought to be kind of fun. So golden oldies, as they would call them in the old days. Golden oldies. So uh, yeah, that's that's coming up. Um, David, are you, uh, are you are you taking off uh, any vacation? Well, you were just in Florida, so you kind of had your vacation. I, I had my I had my vacation. Well, I I am taking off this weekend, and um, I may be sneaking over to McGuire for the air show on Sunday. Maybe we'll see. Cool. A lot of that has to do with weather. But besides that, um, I've got a Sikorsky exhibit opening up in three weeks at the museum that'll run till the end of um, September. So that's still what feels like a ways away. But it's like it's like every other major thing. It takes forever. Then all of a sudden it magically appears. So between that and and a bunch of other new exhibits that have come up. So. And that's pretty much it for my summer. Um, and, and lots of hours in the garden. Of course. All right, a little bit of listener mail. Uh, you may recall previously we were talking about pets with sort of aviation names. And this, this came up. Max Trescott explained uh, the, the, actually a cat that had, had died that was uh, named Fizdo. Fizdo after the... FAA office. Thank you, David. I drew a I drew a blank. And so we asked if you if you have a pet or know of a pet that's got an aviation name, related name, we'd be interested to hear about that. So we did hear from Nicole, and she said, "Hello, my dad sent me your podcast where you asked for aviation themed cat named, and she sent some photos. This is my boy Clico. Now you know what a Clico is. That that's the proper pronunciation, isn't it? Yeah, as far as I know, it is. Yeah, it's a 
like a, it's the fastener, a fastener type that's used in aviation construction frequently. So it's a, it's a brilliant name for a cat. But Nicole says, my dad built a glass air sportsman. He had a whole builder's log, if you're interested. And we are interested. And so we'll put a link to his builder's log in the show notes for this, uh, class, uh, this glass air. And she notes that she got to help build that. And that's, uh, she said, I mostly assisted with the uh, Clecos, and I like saying Cleco so much, I decided to name my next cat Cleco. Well, about 10 years later, I finally live in a place where I can have a kitten, so here Cleco is. Nicole says, interestingly enough, the Ohio Roller Derby organization is something that she's involved in. Do you guys remember Roller Derby? I used to oh, watch Roller I Derby when I was it. in college. Oh yeah, I actually have a friend who just retired and was was in roller derby and and um, now is coaching. As she as she calls them, she coaches the fresh meat, <laughs> which is the rookie, yeah. the rookie um, skaters that you know in their first season before they start officially. So yeah, that's that's. So yeah, it's still around. Believe it, it is, and Nicole has started to uh, get involved in that. I, maybe a little bit different than it was when when we used to watch it back in the 70s. And- Do you mean not quite as brutal? Uh, I think maybe it not. pretty brutal yeah. on the... Gonna have to check I still out. remember the, you know, somebody would give somebody an elbow and somebody would go flying it's still pretty, it's wheel still overhead. It's still full contact. Well, I'm going to check out Ohio Roller Derby and try to pay a little more attention to it and uh, maybe get back into being a, a fan of that. I know I used to love it. So check that out. The uh, the Glass Air Sportsman. Uh, Rob, are you familiar with those? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I mean, not super familiar, but I mean, it's part of the crowd that goes to Oshkosh every year. There's a whole Glass Air uh, section. On this uh, this page, uh, Schroeder's Sportsman, total build time, 2,773 hours. That's a lot of fun. Well, David, think about building a model airplane and someone gave you a kit and said, it'll probably take you about 2,700 hours to complete this kit. I mean, you'd be really excited, wouldn't you? Mm. Yeah, well, I've had model, model, model airplanes that have been 50 to 75 hours for completion. So plastic kits. So, yeah, I, I mean, it. Yeah, if you're into it, it doesn't seem like a long time. No. No, but it, but yeah, I mean, but it's definitely, it's not. 2,700 hours consecutively. Yeah. It was how many over how many years? You know, it'd be surprised how, how long things linger on shelves of doom and what, which is the term most modelers have is for those kits that sort of got started, got halfway through, and for some reason never got finished. So, mm. well, I asked um, Nicole and, uh, and she agreed to uh, let us know when that uh, glass air is completed and taking its first flight. We'd love to uh, to catch up again then at that point. Uh, another email from Holly this time. I, I love this email. Holly writes, Hello, Airplane Geeks. I'm writing to you as the mom of a 12-year-old boy, Owen, who loves all things aviation. Owen has a particular affinity for aircraft history and facts. There you go, David. We are lucky enough to have uh, a view of... PDX, that's uh, Portland, flights landing and taking off from our home in southwest Washington state, so there is always something to watch in the sky. We're lucky enough to live near the Pearson Field Education Center, 
where he attends RC Club and is able to go to aviation camps in the summer through Airway Science for Kids. We are attending Alaska Airlines Aviation Day at PDX this weekend. So she says, Owen is a competitive swimmer. They drive all over Oregon and Washington for swim meets. She says, your podcast has become our swim road trip soundtrack in the car. I love this. And you have kept us riveted through some terrible weather and traffic during early mornings and late nights on the road. We're pretty all over the map and don't always listen in order. We just recently listened to the Christmas trees and B-17s. And as a Jewish American, this one really struck home, paralleling my family's history of discrimination. She says, we also recently listened to the Condor Airlines episode. Now listen to this. And it actually caused us to change our return flight from Europe this summer just so we could fly both directions on that airplane instead of just one. Wow. So she has a question. And I don't have a good answer so I think I found something. Oh, you did? Okay, good. Brian also came up with something. Okay, so here's the question. She asks, is there any resource for looking up what type of aircraft a past flight was on? She says, I'm particularly trying to figure this out for a flight from 2014. Owen and I are trying to put together a record of every flight he's ever been on, including aircraft type, mileage flown, in addition to airline and flight number, et cetera. So that, that's her question. Uh, well, well, but didn't she give the airline, uh, mention the airline? The yellow one. Right. In this particular case, this was a Spirit Airlines Flight 245. It was on January 21st, 2014, from uh, San Francisco to Portland. That's a pretty short flight. Um, well, and, and what I, of course, Spirit has only flown Airbuses for, I don't know if they've ever flown anything other than Airbus, but uh, that's an A319, an A320, A321. Uh, and back in those days, they didn't have the extended uh, range uh, three. In fact, I don't even know if they were flying the 321 10 years ago. I have to look that up, but... Uh, uh, what I uh, what I it would probably be, be a three twenty. I was coming up with it, it would would have been a three twenty. Uh, yeah, no I, one I think no it, one flies. Yeah, I agree. Uh, like I said, I don't even know that the three twenty one was certified, and I can't believe they would put that on a flight so short. Uh, they they'd burn more fuel just getting up and down. But uh, what I did suggest, and uh, Brian uh, came up with the same idea, was. Uh, to contact uh, Spirit's uh, public relations department. Well, they don't have a public relations department, but I put a uh, an email in the show notes that is the uh, email for media relations at Spirit, and they might be able to confirm it. Or depending on who answers the email, they may just say, I don't know, an Airbus, you know, or, or something. So she's going to have to be very specific about the date and the trip. Uh, and, but again, I'm pretty much with David on this. It's probably a 320 because uh, I, I don't know if, you know, I have to look that up. I don't, I don't, think, Spirit... I don't think Spirit has ever flown anything but Airbus. Oh, no, no, I, I don't think they have either, but I don't know that they ever flew a, a 319, which is a, 
uh, kind of a baby. Uh, uh, well, nobody know. flies the three. To, yeah, well, nobody flies that except British Airways and and so and I forget who else it is. The three nineteen, which is the baby, the baby bus. Um, um, well, actually, I I think I am in error. Here is a story. No, I'm I'm not incorrect. I'm <laughs> I've I've uh, I I have alternate facts. Ah. Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> um, no, I went. I just googled it, and uh, I came up with a story from. Um, What's the date on this? Oh, it was January of this year. Spirit's entire Airbus A319 fleet will exit the company by 2025. So they were flying the short, uh, the short body 319s as well. So it could have been a 319 on that uh, on that leg between uh, Frisco and, and PDX. But uh, Spirit would be able to tell you if you can get to the right the right person. And if anybody of our listeners is with spirit. We'd love for you to reach out and, and, and do some really good press for your organization. So, yeah, I mean, so I'm sure that if you know a spirit pilot or, you know, spirit crew or whatever, you, I'm sure that somebody will be able to help little Owen in his thing. You know, I, I, to this day still have a picture of a DC nine, in Delta markings with the old widget that hangs in my in my room that was given to me by my father of my very first flight in 1971 from Philadelphia to Alabama. So it is kind of your first flight is really kind of important. So uh, we we hope Owen gets that information. So what I was trying to find was something like a flight radar 24 it saved all the data in a historical, you know, database, an archive, oh, so that you could go back, back and say, far, yeah, no, if, if something like that is out there, I'd be interested to know. But uh, there is nothing that I'm aware of that, that does that to solve the general case. You know, this year, this date, this flight, what was it? I don't think there's anything there. All right. We had a couple of uh, posts on our Discord server. First was from... Uh, Chowda, who said, really enjoyed the last episode from JARS. This was on mission aviation. And uh, Chowda wrote, I currently go to a flight college that's partnered with Mission Aviation Fellowship. So it was cool to see some people from that field on the podcast. Mission aviators are some of the most skilled kind of pilots. I think it would uh, be very cool to hear some stories from some mission pilots in the future. And I agree. I'm sure those guys have some really, really great stories. And then uh, Grant, our friend Grant, posted in Discord. He said, check out this video and others from Andre Pinto, who flies in Papa, to get a feel for what it's like these days. He says, of interest, the aircraft shown in this video was force landed on a road in bad weather after running out of fuel. All lived, but the airframe received substantial damage. That's not what's on this particular video, but he's just mentioning that the same airplane was subsequently damaged in this way. And so we'll we'll put this uh, video in the show notes and watch how we land on a steep sloped runway in Papa, being Papa New Guinea, I guess. Uh, it's just uh, spectacular. I mean, it's... <laughs> It's it's a um, 
basically a jungle runway that was hand carved into the side of a mountain. It took a number of years just to build this little strip. And it's, um, well, it's pretty interesting getting into it and getting out of it. So uh, look for that in the show notes. It's pretty cool. All right. Thanks for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Our guest this episode was Betty Ann Hagenau, the founder and executive director of the Bay Area Anti-Trafficking Coalition. Find them at baatc.org and also Airport Initiative, which is airportinitiative.com. Of course, you can find us at airplanegeeks.com. The direct link to the show notes for this episode is airplanegeeks.com slash 749. That's the episode number. And as always, our email is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. So, all right, we'll, we'll see if our co-hosts here have any, um, any brilliant things to say. In closing, Rob, we'll start with you. Uh, just one. Uh, thanks for a great uh, season, and uh, we'll be uh, talking to everybody in, what, when do we come back? August? Uh, August, yeah. Well, we have one more week, except you'll be gone on vacation. But right. we have one. But beyond, beyond that, August. so we'll be back. But will you be back? Um, probably. But okay, all right. There's no so, guarantees. Okay, yeah. You know, well, when you go to Banff, you'll know what I'm talking about. It's exactly. beautiful up there. And get to the to the Wolf Park up the up the road up north from Banff. It's not very far. I've marked it on my itinerary. All right, and David Vanderhoof, how about you? I'm going out to play in dirt some more. <laughs> okay. So, with, with that, I'll see you next week. Did All you right. say play in the dirt or eat dirt? Yes. Play in the play dirt. In okay. The dirt. <laughs> I eat the stuff that comes from the dirt. Yes, okay, good point. All right. Now, let's mention if you'd like to get an invitation to our Slack listener team or our Discord server, write us at the geeks at airplanegeeks.com and we'll send you an invitation. So please join us again next week as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye everybody. Night night. Thanks for listening. 